This is Speaking of the Economy, a podcast hosted by the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. In each episode, we'll hear firsthand from the Richmond Fed's economists and other experts about the issues they're exploring, access to credit, to workforce development, to regional differences in economic outcomes. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and do not represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond or the Federal Reserve System. Hi, I'm Jesse Romero, Director of Research Publications at the Richmond Fed. Thanks for listening to Speaking of the Economy. If you like what you hear, check out our website or Apple Podcasts for more episodes or to subscribe. I'm joined today by Richmond Fed economists Felipe Schwartzman and Chen Ye. We're going to discuss a topic that is of perennial interest to policymakers. What causes changes in business cycles? Felipe has been studying this question from the perspective of households, while Chen has been looking at it from the perspective of firms. So let me start with a question for Chen. What interests you about studying business cycles? Uh, Well, it's great to be here. So what interests me, I guess, about business cycles is that it's a very important topic in terms of its consequences for welfare and the growth patterns of firms, which I'm personally uh, very interested in. We macroeconomists uh, have relatively little understanding of it. So um, it's like kind of like a puzzle, and that's what interests me to, to study it. Well, Felipe, same question for you. Why are you interested in studying this topic? You know, a point that was made by some very important econ researchers is that there are other bigger issues, right? I mean, you look at the U.S. economy, how much it grew, you know, the last 50 years or 100 years. If you look at the difference between rich and poor people or rich and poor country, these things are much larger than the 5 or 10% fluctuations in output that requires of a really large business cycle. And, and most business cycles are not that large. I think the reason people care a lot about that is because business cycles have a very unequal incidence. One of the main indicators is unemployment. Unemployment is all about some people are unemployed. Most people are not. Most people are still working. But you know the fact that you could get unemployed and the people who do get unemployed, for those people, it hurts a lot. You know, it could take a very long time for people to go back to where they were in terms of like what their incomes were before they lost their jobs. I think there's a sense that policymakers ought to be able to do something about that. You know, there's this interplay, which is very interesting between business cycles, inequality, politics, and how the politics then, you know, turns around and sometimes can make, you know, business cycles even worse. Understanding how these things kind of get together is is a really big deal. Thanks. So let's talk about policy and policymakers a little bit more. So Felipe, as you note in a recent economic brief, policymakers often respond to recessions by trying to stimulate household consumption by giving money to people so that they'll go spend money. But there has not been a lot of attention paid to declines in household consumption as a potential cause of recessions in and of themselves. Why is that? It's not to say that people haven't looked at it, right? They have. It's just like if you were to look at papers written about business cycles and the main things that people have looked at, disturbances that start with consumers, right? Consumers' sentiment or, you know, consumers uh, being low on wealth or being too levered. These things only started becoming really salient after the Great Recession. Uh, When there was this big drop in housing prices, people started really having the view that this was something that was directly affecting, you know, consumption decisions. Um, Again, of course, you can go back and find papers and people who were talking about that kind of stuff before, but I think that's when it really took off. I think until then, there was this view that consumption doesn't really move a whole lot, you know, with business cycles. And to the extent that it does, you can kind of explain those movements as reactions to business cycles. 
people are going to smooth their consumption. They're going to try to smooth their consumptions. Uh, so consumption is going to move less than one for one with output for that reason. And, and this is what you've seen in the data. I think people have tended to look at things that kind of move perhaps more than output, such as investment or productivity or even inventories, right? Even though it's kind of a relatively small part of, of total output, was kind of a little bit of the sleeping giant. And, and then I think like with the Great Recession, it really became more salient in that sense. So you just mentioned the decline in housing prices as one thing that was kind of a shock to household consumption. What are some other examples of the kinds of things that could really affect household consumption? And you could imagine all sorts of things that could happen with consumer credit. So there's a paper about the Great Depression where they talk about how in the Depression, there was a sense of like, suddenly people didn't have access to credit. We didn't have three-year mortgages. People had to be rolling over their mortgages. So this was kind of a much bigger deal. You can think about consumer sentiment. So I think one thing that happened after the, 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 the Great Recession in 2008 was people were not consuming as much and they were saving much more. I think part of that you can attribute to people needed to deliver. But you could wonder whether some of that is just people became more cautious. And if people become more cautious because they're more afraid of losing a job or, you know, they've had some bad experiences or they become more pessimistic about the future, these things could also affect output. In your research, what do you conclude about the effects of these types of shocks? So I have this paper with Christian Mattis, and we look at uh, consumption shocks. Essentially, we look at, you know, instances where consumer goods are moving around disproportionately as compared to like the rest of the economy. This is how we identify these consumer shocks. And we find that they account for about 40% of fluctuations in the U.S. since the late 70s. So that actually precedes the Great Recession as an important factor. So what are the implications of that for policymakers? There is a sense in which this helps rationalize a little bit this notion that providing insurance to people so that they can smooth their consumption um, is something that is going to also be helpful in stabilizing business cycles to the extent that this is kind of an important source of movement. You know, I, I want to talk cautiously about that. Our research wasn't really geared towards policy analysis, but I think that's kind of a natural thing to think about. Great. Thank you. So let's change course a little bit and talk about the firm side of things. So Chen, there has also been some kind of change in thinking or in the economics literature about how firms can affect the business cycle. So what was the, the more traditional view? So the, the traditional view is that the economy could only be like, you know, moved by what we call like aggregate shocks. So these are unexpected events that are faced by like all economic agents. So, you know, these could be technology shocks, like, you know, the efficiency of like production or monetary policy for that matter. In a U.S. economy, we have about, let's say, 5 million firms. And if something would happen to like a handful of them, we could simply ignore it because we have 5 million of them. Think about the, the movements in the pond as like, you know, business cycles. You throw in little pebbles in there and you think of those like as firms, you know, if the pebbles are small enough, then, you know, nothing happens. Like they, they don't cause like large ripples. They don't cause like, you know, large movements. That was like the original logic behind ignoring like what happens at specific sectors even, or like, you know, specific firms. So that's why we have resorted to the use of like these aggregate shocks uh, instead. Of course, these days we have some firms that are more like boulders than, than little rocks. So what has more recent research found? Exactly. The starting point of like a recent wave of research is a granular hypothesis that was put forward by a Harvard economist called Xavier Gavex. And what he was saying is that like, you know, instead of pebbles, some firms are giants. 
some people would call them mega firms. So rather than throwing pebbles, you're throwing giant rocks in this pond. You would say like, you know, we already knew that large firms always existed. So why did we ignore this in the past? Well, the traditional view was saying something like, okay, large firms can exist, but the odds of like these large firms occurring in the economy, they're so small, we can just ignore it. But what the granular hypothesis says is that, well, when we look at the data, uh, we actually see that the incidence of these very large firms, Walmart or Apple or Amazon, is actually much higher than what we implicitly assumed. So, you know, throwing in, let's say, large rocks into this pond is actually uh, very likely, and that's why we should take it seriously. Great. Well, thanks. That's a really great explanation. What are you looking at in your research? How does it differ from what, say, Gebex was doing? I still like adopt the granular hypothesis, but I'm in a way, refining it a little bit. The classical granularity theory that was, uh, I guess, started around like, you know, 2010 is saying that like all firms are in a way like, you know, equal. So they can be different sizes, but their volatility. So let's say the growth in their employment or the growth in the revenue numbers in percentage terms, that volatility is the same, but um, that's not exactly what we uh, see when we look at the data. So I use confidential data from the Census Bureau that basically consists of every single like employer firm in the U.S. economy. And what you see in the data is that when you compare like large firms, you know, let's say Walmart with a typical like small firm, like, you know, any mom and pop store is that in terms of their movements, like how volatile these firms are, there is actually a very stark difference. Large firms are basically much less volatile than like a typical small firm, that observation is something that you need to take into account when you think about the granular hypothesis. The logic behind this is that, well, there are many like large firms in the economy, there are many large rocks, so to speak, but if these rocks simply don't cause like very large ripples, they're not volatile enough, then they won't have like such a big impact in the aggregate. This idea that like different firms are, uh, have different volatilities was ignored. So this is something that I take into account in the granular uh, hypothesis. So when you take it into account, what do you find about how big those ripples are? Right. So the traditional view like of business cycles that we just talked about with aggregate shocks, they basically said, let's ignore firm-specific events because, you know, the pebbles are so small, you can ignore them. So you would find basically a, a role of firms that is exactly zero. So then you can go to the other extreme, which was started by Xavier Quebec, and he was saying like, okay, let's make a simplifying assumption, as I just mentioned, that all firms are equally as volatile. And then he found like a number that was confirmed also by some other studies, something in the vicinity of like, let's say 30 to 35% of US business cycles can be rationalized by events that happen at like certain firms. When you refine this by, you know, taking into account that a large firm such as Walmart doesn't move as much as, let's say, a mom and pop store, you basically get a number that's somewhere in between. So my study, like where I take this into account, uh, basically puts down a number of like 15% itself. So you find that the granular hypothesis, you know, still accounts for some business cycle fluctuations, but maybe not as large a role as other researchers have found. So what are the implications of that for policymakers? The broad interpretation of my findings and like the granularity studies in general, they're basically saying how much of a role is left for uh, shocks like at the sectoral or the aggregate level, right? So if I say that 
uh, firm specific shocks can account for 15 or let's say 30% of uh, the of business cycle fluctuations, then the residual must be like, you know, taken up by like other factors, like shocks that could occur at the industry level or at the aggregate level. You can imagine like many of those types of examples, right? So at the sectoral level, like these are shocks that occur, like, of course, at specific industries, aggregate shocks can account like, you know, for many types of examples. You can think about technology shocks, like efficiency shocks, or even factors such as like, you know, policy. So this includes monetary and fiscal policy. My work does not quantify exactly like what's in that residual of like 85%. It's just saying there's scope for like these other factors, which includes like policy. Well, Felipe and Chen, thank you both so much for talking to us today and for sharing your research. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Speaking of the Economy is produced by the Research Department at the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. You can subscribe to the podcast on the Apple Podcasts app or download past episodes from our website at richmondfed.org slash speakingoftheeconomy. Want to know more about the issues that the Richmond Fed has been exploring? Check out our regional focus, a series of curated web pages that showcase economic research and data, reports and essays, and community engagement endeavors relevant to 5th District communities. Just look for the links on the homepage at richmondfed.org. The intro music for this podcast was composed by Ernest Barbaric, and the sound effect used in the intro was produced by Keith Holzman. The outro music was by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening.